We're going to be talking about the doctrine of God and specifically about God's holiness. Of Sunday evenings, we've been talking about the doctrine of God and specifically how God acts. Okay, we talked about a God who creates, the God who decrees, the God who upholds, the God who works miracles. And tonight we're talking about the God who is holy. Not necessarily does God act his holiness, but he certainly displays his holiness. And so what we're going to do tonight, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to look at three aspects of God's holiness. Okay, um, so if you can take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. If you, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get you one. Isaiah chapter 6. The top of your handout, there's a quote by John Calvin I want to read to you. He says, hence that drama and amazement with which as scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. Men and women are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. This is similar to what Raquel related this morning about considering the wisdom of God. When we consider God's wisdom, then we immediately apply it and we see ourselves in light of that. When we consider God's holiness, immediately we see our sinfulness and our insignificance. And yet that seems like it would be a depressing thought, but actually it's a glorious and a freeing thought. And we're going to see that tonight as we look at God's holiness. What we're going to do is, from Isaiah 6, look at God's holiness in general and then look at three aspects of his holiness from that text. So in Isaiah 6, I want to read the first two verses. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. Okay, so here we have Isaiah seeing a vision of the Lord and it's in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah reigned for 52 years. If you think about how many prime ministers we've seen in 52 years, quite a few. This king had reigned for 52 years, was, was made king when he was 16 years old and for the most part, he was a good king. He served the Lord. Now, later in his life, he did something very wrong. He um, did not regard the holiness of God and, in fact, went into the temple where only the priest could go and he went and he burned incense to offer incense up to the Lord. And God struck him with leprosy in his forehead and he ended up for the rest of his days as a king um, on his own because of his leprosy. And so even after his death, we see the kingdom of Judah in mourning because this was a great king. And now we see at the death of this great king, we see Isaiah seeing the everlasting and eternal, the living and reigning king, the Lord. It's almost to say as if, as if this great king, he is gone, but the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, he is still ruling and reigning and he is perfect. And no blemish in his majesty. 
This is not just a small piddly throne that he sees. He sees up in heaven the majesty of his garments filling the entire heavenly temple. We see these seraphim, these angelic creatures who had six wings, two covering their face, two covering their feet, and with two wings, they flew. Now, what's significant about the posture of these angelic beings, these seraphim? Okay, for one, they had two wings that covered up their face. The reason why they're covering their faces is because God is so holy and so majestic that even an angelic being cannot gaze and take in the glory of God. The first scripture on your handout is from Exodus 33 that describes Moses wanting to see God's glory. And I'll read Exodus 33. You can look on your handout. Exodus 33, 19 to 23, it says this. And he said, God speaking, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The glory of God is is too great for us to take in because in our sinfulness, in our finiteness, we'd be destroyed by the holiness and by the glory of God. And we see even Moses with that encounter of God, just seeing the back, just seeing the the remnants, the trailings of God's glory when he comes down from the mountain, his face is shining such that the people are afraid of Moses. Okay, not only are they afraid of the glory of God as as they experience the mountain trembling and the the cloud that covers the mountain, but they're afraid of Moses. When Moses comes down, his face face is glowing, and in fact, they won't even speak to him unless he, he wears a veil and covers up his face. Just because Moses had encountered in small part the glory, the holiness of God. That's why these seraphim are covering their face because of God's glory. It's too great. They also see them covering their feet. Okay, they're covering their feet. And this brings to mind Moses again earlier in Exodus. If you look again at your handout, Exodus 3, 2 to 6, it says this. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Here again, Moses hiding his face, Moses instructed to take off his sandals because this is holy ground, okay? There's nothing special necessarily about this ground, but it was manifesting the presence of God. God was there. It says the angel of the Lord, you know, arguably the, the pre-incarnate Christ saying, 
I'm not just an angel. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And you need to take off your sandals because, and you can't come too close because this is, this is holy ground. And so we have the angels around God's temple covering, or around God's throne, covering up their feet. Again, as a, as a sign of that which is unclean like our feet being covered up in front of the presence and the holiness of God. Wherever God is, we have holiness being manifest. We have the, the most holy place in the temple, the holy of holies, where God's presence dwelt. And then his holiness radiated out from that particular location as God made, revealed himself there. So here we have in both instances where Moses was near the presence of God, his posture was like that of the angels, covering the face, covering the feet, just like these angelic beings in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, when God spoke on the mount, on Sinai, whenever he spoke and he gave the law to Moses and the people heard and felt the mountain rumbling, the, the voice of God, the mountain shook. And we see something similar to that here in Isaiah 6. Look at verse number 3 and 4 in Isaiah chapter 6. And one called, one of these angelic beings, one called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds, the door frame, shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Okay, the voice of just, not God himself, but the voice of one of these angelic creatures, the, the temple, the foundations, the thresholds begin to shake. Such a powerful, majestic, and holy being like one of these seraphims, and yet they're frightened to even gaze at God's glory. It wasn't because the Lord has spoken, it was because one of these creatures has spoken. Now, what did the seraphims say? They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Okay, say holy three times. Now, what's the significance of saying holy three times? It has to relate to is it perhaps a Trinitarian formula, Holy Father, Son, and Spirit? Is it, is it just a form of repetition? Why exactly are they saying holy, holy, holy? Well, the Hebrew language, which Isaiah was recording, is different than what we speak today in English. Okay, in English, uh, quick grammar lesson uh, for those who've been out of school for any length of years. Um, I could say it's a bright day. Okay, bright adjective, bright day. Um, I can add, make bright, and I can make it a comparative by saying it's a brighter day. Okay, you rec recognize that that today is not only a bright day, but it's a brighter day. Okay, there's something special about today, and then I can take that that comparative brighter, and I can make it a superlative, and I can say it's the brightest day. Nothing brighter than the brightest day. Okay, and so we understand in English we use term like bright, brighter, brightest. Now in Hebrew they don't have a superlative in that sense. What they do is they add repetition. Okay, and so if you want, if you want holy, okay, that's good. You want holier, you add it twice. You want holiest, you add it three times. We see this in, in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, when God gives the command to Adam and Eve. He says, don't eat of the fruit, okay? Because on the day, of, day you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, you'll surely die. And we read that in our English translation. That's a good translation. But if you look in the Hebrew, it literally says, you will die, die. Okay, that's what it says. 
but we translate it surely die because die, die doesn't make a lot of sense. But what the scriptures are saying is that not only are you going to die, you're really going to die. You're going to die, die. You're going to surely die. Okay, it's really adding emphasis. We also see the same thing happening in Genesis 14. This is from, I'm going to read a quote to you from R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, a good book. Uh, One of those books that um, all of us as Christians should read sometime in our life, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And he says this about Genesis 14. The repetition device, uh, this, this Hebrew repetition device may be seen in Genesis 14. He continues and says, the story of the battle of the kings in the Valley of Siddim mentions men who fell in the great tar pits of the region. Some translators call them asphalt pits or bitumen pits or simply great pits. Why the confusion in translation? Exactly what kind of pits were they? Well, the Hebrew is unclear. The original text gives the Hebrew word for pit, then simply repeats it. The story speaks literally of pit pits. The Jew was saying that there are pits and there are pits. Some pits are pittier than other pits. These pits, the pit pits, were the piteous pits of all. It is one thing to fall into a pit, but if you fall into a pit pit, you are in deep trouble. Okay, they're putting emphasis on this idea. So that's how they, they use their language. And so in a few cases, they'll put a word three times. And here we have it three times describing the holiness of God. Okay, never is God described as mercy, 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 or love, 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 but we have repeated refrain, holy, holy, holy. Nothing is holier than God. He is the holiest. Okay, we recognize the emphasis that they're putting on here. Now, what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean that God is the holiest thing? What does that mean? What we're going to do now is, we looked at this in general, okay, these angelic beings calling God holy. You have a bit of idea, you know, it's, it's hard to, to view. You, you can't be unclean near God's holiness. But there's three aspects you're going to look at in this passage. Okay, and you can follow along on your handout. The first one, God is holy as creator, holy as creator. And this first aspect of holiness means that God is wholly separate or he's transcendent. Okay, he's wholly separate or transcendent. What I mean by this is that there is an eternal, an infinite distinction between the creator and God and the creature. We will never be like the creator in the sense that we are like God We're always going to be a creature. We're always going to be dependent on God for our existence. Only God is in himself um, living and active. Okay, God is not of his creation. He made it. He rules it. He sustains it. He upholds it. He guides it to his intended end. We've been looking at this in previous weeks. In theological or philosophical terms, we call this God's transcendence. Okay, he is outside of his creation. He is distinct from it. He's transcendent, completely other, wholly separate. And that's what we mean by holiness. And we see it in Isaiah 6, 3. If you look there again, it says, Holy, holy, holy is Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is his. His glory is seen as what he has made. The earth is not God, but the earth has what God has made. It manifests his glory and demonstrates his transcendence. 
In Psalm 24, 1 to 3, you can follow in your handout. Psalm 24, 1 to 3, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? Exodus 15, 11 says this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The answer is no one. There's no one like God. He is completely other. He is completely separate. He is transcendent. There's nothing like him. He's holy. 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. So why is God holy? There's none beside him. There's no one like him. He is completely separate. That's in one sense what we mean by holy. He's transcendent. He's separate. He's he has otherness. You can put it that way. Okay? So God is the creator, holy, separate, holy, other, transcendent. And we say that God is holy. That's the first one. The second one. And this is probably more traditional when we think of it. We think of holy. Is holy as pure. Okay? Holy as pure, sinless, and undefiled. Okay? Typically, we think of holiness. We're thinking of morality. We're thinking of ethic. We're thinking of purity. And so we think about God's holiness. We think about purity sinlessness, undefiled, no uncleanness, perfection. Okay, God is sinless. He cannot lie, cannot speak falsely. He cannot break his promises. He cannot commit evil, cannot do wrong. And it's not that God submits to some external standard of holiness, an external standard of right and wrong, but God is that standard. By very definition, what God does is right. The laws of God stem from his character. They're not something beside him, but rather God is holy. He's the definition of holiness, of righteousness. He embodies those things. Perfection, moral perfection. And of course, God's holiness magnifies our sinfulness when we consider God's purity. Let's look at Isaiah 6, 5. And we're going to see this illustrated. Okay, And when God is holy as impure, look at Isaiah 6, 5. And I said, this is Isaiah. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Okay, here we have Isaiah, a holy man, prophet of God. We, we look at his life and say, well, he's, he's pretty upright. He's righteous. But yet when he sees God and he sees God in his holiness, he sees his angelic creatures singing the praises of God, he's completely undone because in front of God's purity, he realizes his own wretchedness. He realizes his speech is right. He's completely undone. He's, he's come apart at the seams. And not only does he recognize his own sinfulness, he recognizes the sinfulness of the people that he's surrounded himself with, the people of God. And so we see our sin vividly when we see God's holiness, okay? So it's so important to remember, okay, what caused Isaiah to say, woe is me, I'm undone? He says there in verse five, look at it again. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of, un- of, the, of a people of unclean lips, for... 
My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Okay, whenever we see God and rightly in who he is, we recognize our sinfulness. We recognize sinfulness. This is the biggest reason, I believe, why in our culture, our culture in large is trying to eradicate any kind of knowledge of God. Because if you eliminate the knowledge of God, if you eliminate a holy God, then no longer do you have that sense of deep woe and uncleanness and wretchedness and, and, and just um, sinfulness that we have in each and every one of us. And so our world is bent, whether that's through uh, believing evolution that we've come from billions of years and these stardust and now we're here we are as people um, or whether it's saying the Bible is full of lies it's unscientific look at all these errors in the scripture whether it's saying Christians are hypocrites the church is out of date um, whatever it is to, trying to discredit God and his holiness such that there is no more sense of guilt or sin and shame now people can't escape that they can try to eradicate the name of God in our culture and in their own hearts, but they're created in God's image and we all know the Lord. And so we, guilt and shame is going to remain a common experience of every single individual because God has written his law on our hearts. But what our culture is trying to do is trying to remove God because if above us there's only sky, then everything's going to be great, right? So the songwriter writes, but in fact, that's not going to be the case. And not only does our culture do this, but many churches, many Christians have the same kind of idea. They deny God as creator as described in Genesis 1 and 2. They deny the Bible's views about sexuality and gender and women and authority. And the, deny the Bible's views about sin and redefine these things. Okay? Now, how do we recover those truths? How do we see ourselves properly? And then the answer is right here, to see God in his holiness. Okay, we're not just here to try to make everyone feel bad by, by pointing out our sin all the time. Okay, our sin does get pointed out. But our sin gets pointed out most when we consider the holiness of God. When we consider who he is. By default, we're going to realize, woe is me. I am completely undone. I'm this inadequate creature before him and I need his mercy and grace or I will be destroyed. Light views of God will make light Christians. And so how do we see God exalted and high and lifted up? We're not going to have a vision like Isaiah did here. How do we see God? And again, it comes back to the ordinary means of grace. We're going to see God in the word. We're going to hear God through prayer and through the assembly of the gathered saints, through the, the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism like we saw this morning. These are our means of grace that God is going to use to remind us of his greatness and his holiness and then our sinfulness is exposed and laid bare there's one more aspect of god's holiness tonight that i want to consider okay the third one okay so god first holy as transcendent and we think about god's transcendence that fact that he is the creator that he's holy other it gives us a sense of awe and worship and adoration at who he is when we consider god's holiness as purity as no blemish no sin Again, it reveals in our own hearts our sinfulness. Okay, these are responses that we have when we consider God's holiness. And now the third one we're going to look at is God holy as Redeemer. 
holy as redeemer. And I have in brackets there communicative because God's holiness, he actually shares. He brings us into his holiness. His holiness, if you think about it, is meant to separate, to divide. There's a difference between us and God in terms of who he is and in terms of his character. But God in his great mercy and grace brings us into his holiness. He gives us mercy and grace. He extends that circle of holiness and he makes us holy. Exodus 19.6 says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says to Moses, to Israel. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, again, the New Testament. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are living stones, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, this to the church, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The great thing about God's holiness is that he communicates it. He brings us into, he makes us a holy and blameless people. His holiness should destroy us. But God is so gracious and so loving that he welcomes and brings us in and he changes us and transforms us and makes us holy. Leviticus 19.2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Okay, we can see that as a command. We can also see that as a promise of God. Romans 1.7 says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints, literally called to be holy ones. Same kind of thing. You are my people. You're called to be holy. I'm going to make you holy. That's what God is saying. That's his promise. In Ephesians 2.21, it says, in whom the whole structure, the church being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And Ephesians 5.26 and 27, talking about Christ, that he might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This has got to be one of the most shocking aspects of God's holiness, that he would share it, that he would make us holy, that he would bring, he'd extend that circle of holiness, he would bring us in and he'd transform us to be a holy nation, a holy people, a trophy of his grace, just like a lamb without spot or blemish through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing grace, amazing mercy of God. So we see, yes, God is perfect. He's infinite and eternal in all of his attributes. He's full of glory and he brings us into himself. He cleanses us from our sin. He forgives us our iniquities. He transforms us into this holy and blameless people. And we're still a work in progress, but we know that one day we will be glorified and we will see him as he is. We'll see him face to face. Now, how does Isaiah respond to such grace? 
Well, first of all, let's see what, where in Isaiah this happens. Look at verse number seven. <clears throat> I should have read this verse earlier. Verse number seven. Six and seven. Isaiah six, verses six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Okay, here we see that third aspect of God's holiness, that he shares it, that through his own atonement, that through his own altar and through his son, Jesus Christ, he now touches the lips of Isaiah and makes him clean. And we recognize that, that we are also made clean through the Holy Spirit that God sends and dwells within us and gives us a new heart, a heart that loves him. God atones for our sins. He makes us holy. He makes us into holy ones. We see it here in Isaiah 6 and verse 6 and 7, how Isaiah's guilt is taken away before the holy God. Now, how does Isaiah respond to such grace? Look at verse number eight. We're going to end here by looking at verse number eight tonight. Look at verse number eight. It says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. What is the the typical response when our sin is exposed Okay, this is in human nature. Our typical response when sin is exposed is either to cover it up, lie about it, you know, commit more sin to try to try to keep that sin under wraps, or perhaps we try to to morally reform ourselves, to do good things, to atone for, to make up for what what we've done. But we see the scriptural response is Isaiah is broken, and God touches his lips and makes him clean. And then Isaiah gets his commission. God says, who's going to go? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And this is the gospel. Okay, this is the gospel here in Isaiah 6. What I mentioned was, what do people typically do when sin is exposed? They cover it up. Okay, they deny God. They do anything to remove the guilt and the shame or to attempt to, to hide their sin. Or they try to morally reform ourselves. We see that in our society today. Tons of atheists and agnostics, tons of other people who are very religious and who seek to, through their moral reform, appease God and merit some form of salvation before God. The gospel is completely opposite to those things. The gospel is here in Isaiah chapter 6. What happens? God's holiness is manifested before Isaiah. Isaiah is completely undone. I am a sinner. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And what does God do? He, God touches them and he makes them holy. He touches them and he makes them clean. And then what does Isaiah do? Then he goes. Then he, then he is now God's prophet. Now he's going to proclaim the word of God. Now he's going to work for God. And the same sequence of events is seen in the gospel. The gospel is not do all of these good things and then God is going to reward you with the forgiveness of your sins. It's exact opposite. It's God has rewarded you. God has forgiven your sins. God has touched you and make you, made you clean through his mercy and grace. And now out of love, not driven by guilt or fear or desire to be rewarded, now out of love you serve him and you go for him and you proclaim the gospel for him. And we see that same pattern happening in our day and age. That is the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We do not achieve our salvation. God in his holiness and in his mercy and grace reaches out and he makes us clean. And then he sends us out in his service. Now, Moses could not see God. The angels here had to cover their face. But the gospel tells us that we will experience God's salvation perfectly, finally. And in the future, we're going to see God. See that? We're going to see God in the future. We're going to stand before Him. He's going to wipe away our tears. We're going to be completely made new. And we're going to be holy and blameless, such that we'll be able to see. And we'll be able to walk on the same ground as our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be holy and stand in His presence. What a great thought that is to think of. Let's pray.